Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning. It comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 4 and verses 1 to 7. So Galatians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, I want us to see at the outset that chapter 4 is really just a continuation of how we ended in chapter 3, isn't it? If you remember that very last verse in, in chapter 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In the very next verse, right, chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. And so we see that same subject matter is being dealt with. Uh, we also see that in the repetition of that language of, of guardians and managers, don't we? If you remember in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that that same language was used there. That we were told, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so in our text today, what we ought to see is that Paul is just expanding right upon the differences between that time when Israel was under guardians and the time now of the coming of Christ. Right? Paul is continuing here to expand on the, the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he's arguing so so vehemently, right, this, this case, uh, because you have so many in the churches of Galatia who were thinking that there were still advantages to be gained by turning back to Moses. But Paul's point is that the, the purpose of that covenant, the time of that covenant, right, is no more, right? It was only until the fullness of time had come when God's right time came on God's timeline. And then those privileges that were once privileges right, ceased to be privileges because Christ has brought with Him the, the fulfillment of those things. The, the reality is here. And with it, freedom and maturity from those former things that were once erected while Israel was still a child. And so it's these differences that we want to dig into further as we look at verses 1-7 to this morning. And we'll do so uh, under three points, really. And the three points are this. First, the time prior to fullness. That's going to be point number one. The time prior to fullness. And with that, we'll be looking at verses one to three. Our second point 
In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And there we'll consider verses 4 and 5. And then thirdly, in the fullness of time, our third point, God sent the Spirit. And with that, we'll be looking at verses 6 and 7. And in doing so, as we look at these things, as we look at the time prior to the fullness, and we look at the fullness, I hope that we'll be able to see, right, why we should never turn back, right? Why the the Judaizers and why the saints in the churches of Galatia needed to stop looking backwards to Moses and and live in light of the reality of Christ and what He brought. And so point one, the the time prior to fullness. Look with me again at verses 1-3. through I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, what I want us to see in these first two verses is that, is that Paul is drawing from civil law to illustrate his point about what was true of the Israelites under the Mosaic economy. Okay, we need to understand that in Paul's day, it was common for someone of, of great wealth uh, to give his child to the care of guardians or custodians, right? to look over that child for a time. And while that youth was a youth, he, he understood that he was to inherit right, his father's land and right to all that his father had, but he wouldn't inherit, inherit it until a specified date or time, or until he hit a, a particular age. But until then, until that date, until that time, that child was just like a slave. right? Just like a slave, he didn't have an inheritance that was his, that he possessed. He didn't have a, a right to those things yet. He was no different from a slave. This is why Paul says, the youth, although owner of everything, and that's better translated, uh, the youth who is Lord over all. Uh, the Greek word for Lord, kyrios, is, is that word that's actually there. So, it's better translated, the, the youth was Lord over all, meaning Lord over all of his father's things. He's no different than a slave until he actually acquires possession of those things. Why is that also true? Well, because while he was under guardians and while he was under you know custodians, they had authority over him, just like those had authority over slaves. Right? The, the, the guardians over the, the air would tell him what to do. Right? They managed his time, managed his day while he was still a youth. It wasn't until he actually came of age and acquired possession of a legal title to all that he was heir to that he finally became free. Right? That he experienced that, that liberty and those appointed guardians and caregivers that he was put under were no more now that he reached the time of adulthood. Right? No longer was a child. Right? Also, what it meant was that when he acquired those things in adulthood, right, that he acquired all of the privileges that come along with, with being an heir to all of his father's estate as well. And now in verse 3, the point of the analogy, Paul says, though, is this. The reason why I said what I said in verses 1 and 2 is this. Because in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Right? Paul's saying that what was true in civil law concerning heirs 
was true of you Israelites under the Mosaic Law. Right? Paul wants the, the Judaizers and he wants the especially right, Jewish converts and those Gentile converts who are thinking about becoming Jews in a sense. Right? He wants them to see that, that that former covenant that God made with Israel is not something that they ought to desire. Right? It's not something they ought to want to go back to. Why? Because it was enslaving, he's saying. Right? That, that, that former covenant was, was limiting. Right? Why would you want to go back to enslavement when you can have freedom? But that's what the law did under the old covenant and all these ordinances. Right? It made them slaves. It, it put them under these things. Now, Paul calls those things the elementary principles of the world. Now, how so? Well, as we've seen before, right, Israel is described as being a, a child under the Old Covenant. They were then, in a sense, we can say in elementary school under the Old Covenant, right? right? They, were, they were taught like children in the sense that there was all of these strict rules that were over the Israelites to kind of keep them in line, wasn't it? And to, to keep them on the, on the straight and narrow. All these demands, right? Certain places they had to go to. Uh, certain sacrifices that had to be made at a particular day, at a particular time, in a particular way. Right? There was requirements stacked upon requirements stacked upon requirements. What food you could eat. Right? Ceremonial washings. The, the type of clothes you wore. Right? All of these things, right? Right? Bound the Israelites under the Old Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author actually writes about these things saying in verses 9 and 10, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Right. So Paul is saying that, that before the time of Reformation, the Israelites were like elementary children in elementary school. Right? They had all these strict rules and obligations put on top of them to, to keep them in order, to keep them in line, to, to keep them occupied so that they would not do wrong. Another aspect Paul might be touching on when he calls these things the elementary principles of the world is also how they were taught in elementary school. Right? How they were taught. When a child first goes into school, you know, kindergarten, first grade, right, we don't give that child a paragraph or a sentence and say, read this, do we? No, what, what do we start? We start with the basics. We start with the ABCs. Even myself in seminary, uh, as a student learning Greek, even as an adult, I was taught like I was a child. You know, they didn't just hand me sentences and paragraphs and say, read these, but rather I had to learn the basics. Right? I had to learn the, the Greek alphabet. I had to learn how to sound out the, the, each letter in order to make those words, to make sentences, to be able to read paragraphs. And so what Israel is doing, or what God is really doing in Israel through these types, through these shadowy figures, through these ordinances and rites, was kind of teaching them the ABCs, wasn't He? Right? As the children. But it was meant to prepare them so that when Christ came, they would be able to put everything together. Right? And see everything in light of what they have been taught. The problem, though, in Galatia is that the Judaizers are saying that the law, right, they're saying those elementary principles, as Paul calls them, were not the basics. 
were not the ABCs, but rather they looked at them and said, that's higher education. They said, the law, right, the Mosaic law, that's, you know, PhD work, right, that's higher education, that's graduate level study. But Paul says, in fact, the opposite is true. It's the basics for children to comprehend. It was an elementary mode of instruction for the Israelites. But that way of teaching, that was true though for all of the Israelites, wasn't it? Even the elect of God, wasn't it? Think about Moses and Joshua. Were they freed from all of the burdens that were placed upon the backs of the Israelites? No. They had to do everything else that the unbelieving Jews had to do as well. All of those burdens of the laws and the ceremonies and the washings were placed upon them as well. They had to observe it all. All people were, were under bondage to these ordinances. Ordinances ultimately that are earthly and carnal and outward and external. Right? But the believer was no better off than the unbeliever. Now, although this was the case, that also though doesn't mean that we ought to despise Right, those laws and those ordinances that God had established. But rather, brothers and sisters, we gotta see them for what they were. Now they weren't arbitrary. Right? God just didn't arbitrarily give them things to occupy their time with, but rather He gave them these things to point them to heavenly realities, didn't He? The problem though was, was that the Judaizers and unbelieving Jews did not understand the law in that way. Right? They missed out on what God was teaching them under the Old Covenant. Because if they would have learned, if they would have understood, when Christ came, they would have hit their knees and they would have thanked God, right? recognizing that, that God gave them all those things, put them under that bondage because He was sending Christ who would be the fulfillment of all those things so that by faith in Him they would be justified. That's what all of those things that they were given was meant to teach them and prepare them for. So when they saw Christ, they would go, Aha! Here is the one that you have been pointing us to. Here is the one that we have placed our, our faith in. Right? He is here today. Now we see. Right? God gave them this heavenly doctrine in earthly forms. But for so many, they were unable to see past the earthly form, weren't they? They continued in a a spiritual stupor. Why is that? Well, that's ultimately because the, the doctrine of Christ is a, a spiritual doctrine, isn't it? Right? It can't be seen by the eyes of natural man. So, apart from the work of the Spirit, the Jews under the Old Covenant would have never understood this. Right? They would have never understood that the Kingdom of Israel was a type of something greater. Right? The Kingdom of Israel itself was not the, the end-all, be-all. Right? Because the kingdom of Israel was the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Israel was a carnal kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was an earthly kingdom, a physical kingdom, which pointed forward to a better kingdom, a greater kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, Christ's kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that Jesus says is not of this world. And yet, Jesus comes, He brings the kingdom. And they want to go back to earthly forms. They want to go back to to shadowy figures. They want to go back to enslavement and imprisonment, not understanding that the purpose of the law was to not give them freedom, but to shut them up. Why? Well, because what it demanded, they could never give. 
This is something that the apostles recognized, didn't they? In Acts chapter 15, verse 10, we're told Peter stands up at the council of Jerusalem. And listen to what he says. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Remember that the Council of Jerusalem happens after Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. And that letter that is written in the Council of Jerusalem is dealing, though, with these very things, isn't it? And what does Peter say? That the, that the, the, the law, as they were seeking to have Gentiles circumcised and observe ceremonial law, Peter's saying, that's a, a yoke that our fathers nor we are able to bear. This is why Paul is telling them, right, that former state is not better than the state that Christ has brought. Right? God's purpose was never to keep you in that state forever. Right? God's purpose in sending the Son was to, to get you out of that state, to bring you to a state of, of freedom and liberty and maturity. Right? Even for the believer. Right? Remember, brothers and sisters, that under the old covenant, even the believer, only seen Christ in spiritual things darkly. Right? They seen it very, very dimly because they did not have the full revelation. And so why go back to that time where you can see Christ in spiritual things through foggy lenses when Christ has now come and He has cleared off the fog and enables us to see all things clearly. Right? This is one of the, the glorious benefits of the new covenant than to the old. right? The fact that now we can see those things clearly. We can see Christ clearly in these great uh, mysteries in Christ clearly. These spiritual doctrines. Look with me then at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as... Sons. This leads us to our second point then that we want to look at this morning, which we'll call, right, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. What Paul is saying, and what Paul has continued to say throughout this letter, is that everything has a time, doesn't it? But what he's highlighting is that it's God who dictates time. Right? It's God who, who guides time. It's God who controls time. It's God who is sovereign over time. And He does things in the space of time according to His purposes perfectly. Right? Paul's point is that God is, is the captain of time and not man. And so in God's predetermined plan, He appointed a time in which that bondage of the law would give way to freedom and adulthood. Right, he appointed a time in which a, a son and an heir would finally be able to grab hold to his inheritance and become a possessor of it all. When was that time? Well, Paul says, when God sent forth His Son. Right, when God sent forth His Son. Here Paul describes the Son. Right, the, the second person in the Trinity as being 
sent forth by God in the fullness of time or, or at the perfect time. Now, He is sent forth. Why? The Son is sent forth by God because He is the Father's only begotten Son. That is why the, the Father sends the Son. Right? This is what distinguishes the persons in the Trinity. Right? This is what distinguishes Father and Son is what we call relations of origin. Right? What is it that distinguishes the, the, the persons in the Trinity? They're relations of origin. Okay? But it's this internal and, and eternal ordering that explains for us the why. It explains for us the external working of the Trinity in space and time. Right? It explains to us the missions of each person in the Trinity. So if you want to know why a person does something in redemption, we look back to the relations of origin. Because it tells us why that person's mission is what it is. Right? So what distinguishes the Father from the Son? Well, the Father is unbegotten. Right? What distinguishes the Son from the, the Father and the Spirit? Well, the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And so in their external work, we see that very same thing. Right? The Father sends the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father based on their relations of origin within the Godhead. But we start there. We must start there. You, we are not to look at the external workings of God. We are not to look at the missions of the persons and force that back upon the Trinity in the internal relations of origin. Right? We are not to do that. That's to reason backwards. That's what much of modern evangelical theology is guilty of doing today. Right? The Father sends the Son, not because, as some people say, the Father has more authority than the Son, but the Father sends the Son because the Son is eternally generated from the Father. That's why. And not the other way around. That's why the Son doesn't do the sending, but the Father does the sending. Because the Son is from the Father. Okay? We need to understand that. Right? You may wonder, why am I, am I saying that? Well, this is so important to keep in mind as we, as we think about the Trinity. As we discuss the Trinity. As we talk about the persons and their, and, and their missions in history and in time. Right? Because to lose focus of, of these distinctions causes many people to wander into all sorts of heresy. Right? Many people are guilty into falling into modalism or some form of subordinationism, all things of which the church condemned you know, back in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Right? The Son is not just a different mode of the Father who, who interacts in a different way with the world. Right? That's modalism. And what does modalism do? It denies the, the real eternal distinctions of the persons of the Trinity. Right? It says, well, he's, he's the Father when he needs to be the Father. Then he becomes the Son. Then the Holy Spirit. No. Right? One God, three persons. Subordinationism, though, in all of its forms, essentially, views the Son, even if they won't uh, admit it, as a lesser deity. Um, because they ultimately see the Father as the one who has eternal authority over the Son. But we need to understand the only reason they make that error is because they are looking at the external works and they are placing it upon the internal and eternal relations of origin. 
It's the wrong way of doing things. Right? You're supposed to do it the other way around. This is why the, the church has rejected modalism and all forms of subordinationism throughout church history. Right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are co-equal in power and authority. They are co-eternal. And so we need to understand relations of origin is a helpful way or a helpful reminder to distinguish the works of the Trinity by why it is the Father does the sending of the Son. Now it's also important though to understand that deity be sent. It's important that deity be sent because not just man, but, but we needed God to stand between God and man. Right? We needed God to be able to reconcile God and man. Right? We needed not just a man, but God, whose obedience was of infinite value and worth and efficacy for everyone who would ever believe. And so the Father, by eternal decree, determines to, to send forth His Son for man in the fullness of time to redeem Him from the law, Paul says. It's also important we understand, though, that, that the Son of God was not sent without consent. Why? Well, because the Father's decree to send forth the Son in the fullness of time is the Son's decree as well. The Father's decree to send forth the Son in the fullness of time to redeem man from the law is the Holy Spirit's decree as well. Remember, it is they are one in being. They are one in will. But the Son also is able to be sent. Because although God is one in being, He is not one in person. Three persons. One God. This is why the Father then is able to send the person of the Son into the world to be born of woman under the law. But this is also why it is important that that our Redeemer not just be God but be man. Right? Because divine justice requires that God's wrath be satisfied by the same nature that sinned against Him. It is human beings who sinned against God. So someone who was truly man must pay the penalty for sin. It was man's offense, and so man had to perform all that was required by God. And so God determines to send the Son to assume our nature. What does that mean? Well, He assumes to Himself our soul, a human soul, a human body, with a reason, with will, with affections, with all of our infirmities, hunger, thirst, pain, sorrow, gets tired, yet without sin. Why? Well, because ultimately He was born without man's original sin and without man's original corruption because He was not born through natural generation. But He was conceived of in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Right? Not like you and I. And so, Jesus alone was the one who was equipped and fitted to do this very work of redeeming man from the curse of the law. Jesus alone was the one who was fitted as God-man to offer Himself as the once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin. Right? The old system, brothers and sisters, could not do that. Well, Jesus came and what He accomplished did that very thing. Right? When Christ came in the fullness of time, right, He obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. He, he died for sin. And when He did, 
the old system ceased and it gave way to, to the new covenant in Christ. And so Paul's point here throughout this letter and in our text in particular then is now that the old system has ceased, now that Christ has come in the fullness of time, Jews, it's not important for you to be under the law anymore. Don't submit yourself to it. Right? Paul's point is to the Gentile converts. Since that old system has now ceased with the coming of Christ who, who, who abrogated it by establishing the new covenant, Gentile, there's no reason to put yourself back under it now either because it does not stand. We said it before, but it bears repeating. Right? Christ came to do what? To, to break down that wall of partition. Right? To break down whatever stood between Jew and the nations. But what does that teach us? Right? That, that what was already here, what Christ brought, were never meant to stand together. They were never meant to, to be together at the same time. Right? The, the, the Mosaic law, that old covenant, expired with the coming of Christ when the fullness of time came. Right, The time of being under the yoke of the law is over. The time of freedom has come. Jesus has come, delivered His people from servitude, from slavehood, by His perfect obedience and His death so that we would no longer be sons, but that we would be sons of God receiving all of our inheritance as His children. Right, Jesus came and in His life and in His death He won us the full rights of sonship. And so what does that mean, brothers and sisters? That that you and I, that no believer today ought to be living in the stage of promise any longer. We are to be living our lives now in the stage of fulfillment. To live any other way is to deny the perfection of what Christ brought. To live any other way is to reject that, that Christ brought the full benefits of all that we need through His life and His death. Right, those benefits that we enjoy, which include knowing that sin no longer has dominion over us. To know that we have liberty now to serve God as He desires, worship Him as He desires, inwardly, outwardly. Right, to know that God accepts us in His Son. To know the love of God that He demonstrated in sending His Son to die for us. To know that God's heart is always directed toward His people. These are the benefits that we receive. Right, to know that we are not cursed but blessed, to know that we have been made heirs of a heavenly glory as sons and daughters of God. But we all need to see that that deliverance only comes through the cross. Right, you and I receive redemption because Christ died. And Jesus died because He was sent forth to do so. So that all who believed in Him would receive that adoption as sons. But Jesus is not the only one who was sent in the fullness of time, was He? Right? Jesus came and he, he brought the revelation of the Gospel. Right? Jesus came and He said, the Kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Jesus came to uh, purchase that inheritance for us. He came to, to do away with the Old Covenant. But that's not the only advantage of the New Covenant to the Old. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me, please. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This leads us to our third and final point this morning, which we said is, in the fullness of time, God sent the Spirit. In the fullness of time, God sent the Spirit. We need to understand that that God sent two gifts to us. 
in the fullness of time. He sent His Son and He sent His Spirit. Right? The Son and the Spirit. Both necessary. Right? Because what does the Son do? The Son came and He merited everything for us. But we needed the Spirit to come to do what? To apply that all to us. And so we see the, the, the Son did His work and the Spirit comes up and, and follows up behind the work of Christ. Now just as we preface what it meant to be Son of God and be sent by the Father, we'll do the same thing here with the Holy Spirit as well. Remember what we said, what distinguished Father and Son, the relations of origin. Father is unbegotten. Son is eternally begotten or eternally generated from the Father. So what distinguishes the Holy Spirit from Father and Son? The third person of the Trinity. Well, what distinguishes Him from them is that He eternally proceeds from Father and Son. Or He is eternally spirated from Father or Son. Another way to say it, that He is eternally being breathed out right, by Father and Son. That's what distinguishes the Spirit in the Trinity from Father and Son. This is something that we read in John chapter 15, verse 26, of the Holy Spirit being the one who proceeds from the Father. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Right, and so we see what distinguishes the Spirit from the others is that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. But He also eternally proceeds excuse me, from the Son, which is why Paul can call Him the Spirit of the Son. Right, he can't be called the Spirit of the Son if He doesn't also come from the Son. And so the Holy Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son. But because of that internal and eternal distinction, that we make of the Holy Spirit, it tells us, though, something now about His external works, doesn't it? It tells us something about the mission of the Holy Spirit. right? Because why? The Holy Spirit, since He eternally proceeds from Father and Son, when He comes, His work is not to glorify Himself and to say, look at me, is it? No, His work when He comes in now is to point back to the ones from, that He proceeds from. right? To point back to Father and Son. Right? That's what Jesus says in John chapter 16. Right? When the Spirit comes, He will glorify Me. Right? He's going to reveal Me and My Father's relationship with Me to you. And as the Father then excuse me, sends the Holy Spirit, where does He send Him? Well, we're told in verse 6, He sends Him into our hearts. Right? Sends Him into our hearts. That's where the, the Holy Spirit manifests His presence in the believer. Right? In our heart. Why? Well, because the heart is where the new birth begins, isn't it? Now, when we speak of the heart, though, oftentimes the heart is misunderstood. When we talk about the heart, people oftentimes understand it as, as speaking about our emotions. Right? But when Scripture speaks about the heart, it's saying so much more. Right? When Scripture refers to the heart, it's referring to the, to the whole person. Even our capacity to think. Okay? One author puts it this way, as he's Commenting on John Owen's view of the heart, he says this, For John Owen, the heart indicated all of the faculties of man's spiritual life. Here is the source of motives. Right, The heart is the source of motives. It's the seat of passions. It's the center of our thought processes. 
It's the spring of conscience. It's like a control center in every person. Everything you think, choose, desire comes from the heart. So that when the Spirit is sent forth into our heart, right, He doesn't just bring spiritual transformation to, to our emotions, but he, he brings spiritual transformation to our entire being. Right? Even our, our minds and what we think and what we know. Right? The Spirit came to give us greater knowledge of, of Father and Son and that relationship that existed. A knowledge that was not clearly known under the Old Covenant, but which is a benefit of, of the sending of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit came to provide greater assurance and comfort of the way of salvation, which again, was not clearly and fully known under the Old Covenant. Another benefit of sending the, the Spirit in the New Covenant. He also gives us what? New affections, new desires. Right? He, he draws our hearts closer to God. And how does He do it? Ultimately, by granting to us knowledge of the character of God towards us as Father. That's what Paul says here. Sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It's interesting. I don't know if anyone who may know off the top of their head, and don't shout it out if you do. How often when you read the Old Testament, do you hear people call God Father? You're hard-pressed to find an instance of that, aren't you? And yet, when, when Jesus comes, He immediately addresses Him as Father. He speaks to people about Him as His Father. And He, he prays to Him as His Father. And Jesus teaches us what? To likewise call Him Father. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. Right? You see, the Spirit is sent in order that He might give us confidence that we too can address the Father in this way. right? The Spirit is sent by God so that you and I, through faith in Christ, can share in that same relationship between Father and Son that God the Father and God the Son share. And now, just as, as Christ called out to His Father, my Father, we too, having the gift of the Holy Spirit, can cry out in the same way. And in knowing this revelation, how can it not change the way that we want to approach God in prayer and in speaking to Him? Right? Uh, Jesus constantly and unashamedly goes before His, His Father as Son and cries out to Him. Right? When Jesus is, is overwhelmed with grief, when Jesus is, is stricken with great fear, He's not ashamed, He's not embarrassed, He's not hesitant to go before His Father and call out to Him as a son. Can the same be said of you? Can the same be said of you? How about when you sin? Right? When you sin, are you hesitant to approach God in prayer as a son or daughter of God and call out to Him, Father! Believing that He wants to show to you His grace and His mercy. If you are convinced that God loves you, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. Why you wouldn't call out to Him as Father. And it's that Spirit, though, that convinces you of that very thing. Right? It's the Spirit inside of you that bears witness and testifies with your Spirit that you are a child of God. That you can call out to Him as Father. And what a benefit is that under the New Covenant, isn't it? To know that very thing. 
that's something that, that slaves don't have the privilege of doing. Right? When a slave speaks to, to their owner, what do they call them? Master, maybe? Lord? But you are invited. You are told. You are commanded to call out to Him as Father. The Spirit then is also given so that we might love Him as Father. Right? The Spirit has been given that we might trust Him as our Father. Right? The Spirit is given that we might know that in all things, that is how He's acting toward us right? as Father. Also, slaves, with their masters, aren't they oftentimes scared to raise their head and look up at them? Right? Slaves are, are maybe timid in their speech and, and are scared to talk and speak very few words. But the Holy Spirit has, has indwelt us so that we might approach God boldly. Right? The Spirit has been given to us that we might speak to Him often and that we might speak to Him most affectionately. Right? This is a privilege that we have now as, as grown-up adults, having the, the plan of God now being unfolded to us in the New Covenant, something that the saints of the Old Covenant were not fully privy to. But let us also understand this, that what the Spirit reveals to you, what the Spirit stirs up within you to pray, are only things that Christ has taught. This is why if anyone ever says, you know, the Spirit audibly spoke to me and said this, and it's contrary to what Christ taught, we know they are a liar. Because who is the Spirit but the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of truth? And so the Spirit of truth will never teach us anything that is contrary to God's Word. And in fact, the Spirit of truth has been given to teach us or guide us or lead us into all truth. Which is what? It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit who gives us peace of conscience then with God too, doesn't He? It's the Spirit who brings about our contrition and conviction and confession. right? Confession of sin. Confession of our need for Christ. Confession of our unworthiness before God. Confession of His all-worthiness. Confession of faith in Him. It's the Spirit who, who leads us now today in heavenly things. It's the Spirit who teaches us not to live in, in fear, but in liberty. The question is, has He done all those things for you? Can you say, He has done those things for me? I can understand why there are many people who would call themselves Christians today who lack that assurance, right? who are unsure about their, their faith. It's because they hear about what Christ was sent to do. They hear about what the Holy Spirit has come to apply. And it's missing in their life. Right? There is no evidence in it. And so perhaps for, for some, they ought to question their, their faith. They ought to question their Christianity. Right? If you, if you live like the world in the world and you see nothing wrong with it, you should doubt. If you have no desire to call out to God and cry out to Him as Father, you should be worried. But that's not the same thing. And I want us to understand this clearly. It's not the same thing as desiring those things, right, of praying to God and calling Him Father and living a, a consecrated life and not in the world. Right? It's not the same thing as desiring to do that, to honor God, but coming up short. It's not the same thing. 
For that person who desires those things but sometimes fails, they aren't to question their faith. But rather, they're to trust in the promises of God. And that desire that they have within them is evidence, ought to be evidence to them, right? That, that, that they are a son or daughter of God. If you lack desire, though, if you lack desire to pray, if you lack desire to, to live a consecrated life to the, to the Lord, if you lack a desire to worship God and be amongst His people, then instead of trusting in the promises of God that you are a child, instead you need to go to God, run to God in faith and repentance. Right, crying out to Him, asking for a new heart, but knowing that ultimately He does it not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what Christ has already accomplished. And for those, though, who know Christ lives in you because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, I want you to see all that you have in Christ. And see all that you have in Christ that, that Paul has, has told us throughout this letter. Rejoice in it. But also pray that, that God would shield you from ever falling back into a mentality that thinks that there are advantages that you can find spiritually outside of Christ. And may it cause you to appreciate God all the more and give thanks to Him for Christ. May it cause us to be thankful to God for the sending of the Holy Spirit and thankful for what He has done and what He continues to do in our life. May it cause us to cry out to God often, Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You that in the fullness of time You sent Your Son to redeem me from the curse of the law. You sent Your Spirit to apply the benefits of that salvation so that I would no longer be a slave, bound under the law and prison to it. But rather You did those things so that I might be a son. And as son, that I might be an heir to all of those glorious things in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is trustworthy. It is true. You are faithful. And You are so kind and compassionate towards Your people as we read Your Word this day. We were so undeserving of being redeemed from the curse of the law. We are deserving of death and condemnation uh, and eternal separation from the loving presence of God forever. Experiencing nothing but the wrath and anger of God upon us for all of eternity, and yet that is not what You have given to us. You have given to us great things. You have opened our eyes to these spiritual realities. And You have given us freedom and liberty in Jesus. You have caused us to be mature adults in the faith, uh, knowing and learning things that the Old Testament saints long to know. And so we thank You, Lord, for the new covenant, the better covenant, with better promises and a better mediator who is Christ. We pray, Lord, this day and this week you would, you would stir us up to thanksgiving and prayer for all that you have done for us, uh, recognizing that it is a kind mercy and a sweet grace that you have given to your people. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.